Father in heaven, I pray that you would be with us. And Lord, I pray that you would help me, O Father, to be able to see your word clearly, to divide it rightly. That you would help us, O Father, to understand suffering in the light of your sovereign hand that, Father, you would open the eyes of our heart and fill us with your spirit for your glory, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In the news recently, we watched a number of airline disasters from Indonesia to the Ukraine, to Taiwan, to Africa. We've watched, as you've turned on the news, wars that have made many homeless in the Middle East, wars that have made many homeless in Eastern Europe. We've watched as thousands of people have fled out of Honduras, have fled out of Mexico to come to the U.S. because of poverty, because of conflict. Those of you who have returned from the Philippines have seen human suffering, have seen difficulties far beyond what you would have seen here in the States. People have problems in life, and people ask, why God? Why did I lose my job? Why did I lose a child? Why did someone pass away so soon? Why am I suffering? You know, the many people that I've ever met throughout life, there is one person that I've always admired who has risen above her circumstances and inspired so many despite her suffering. It is Johnny Erickson Tata. As many of you know, 45 years ago or so, in 1967, she became a quadriplegic after diving into shallow water and breaking her neck. But through her struggle, she came to know God in a way that has impacted many. Her relationship with God led her to establish a ministry called Johnny and Friends, in which she ministers to those with physical disabilities. And her detailed paintings that she makes by painting with a paintbrush in her teeth, her songs that she sings that are so difficult by lifting her body up as much as she can so she can even breathe to be able to sing songs to God, have encouraged those who have physical disabilities in order to be able to honor God with their lives. She has inspired many through her ministry despite the fact that she is virtually paralyzed through most of her body. I remember meeting her at a shepherd's conference once. Even though it was so brief, she was so tired after sharing. This was probably 15 years ago. But her focus wasn't on herself. Her focus wasn't how tired she was. Her focus was on me, asking me questions, how I was. She writes an illustration about suffering entitled, quote, What Gives Suffering Meaning? She writes, You are walking down a street minding your own business when you are accosted 
and forced to carry a huge and heavy basket on your back. You're ordered to walk three blocks, turn left, go two blocks, turn right, then proceed straight on. Staggering under the weight, you stumble on, bewildered and angry. The weight of the basket is crushing. Your back is breaking. The whole thing is meaningless and haphazard. You resent how the heavy burden consumes you, becoming the focal point of your entire existence. When you're halfway around the third block, reeling under the burden, you finally bellow. What gives? The truth is then revealed. The burden you are carrying is your child, injured and unconscious. What? On top of that, you are not trudging through a meaningless rat race, but the most direct route to a hospital emergency room. Immediately, you straighten up. You inhale new vigor. Your your knees quit buckling. Adrenaline and fresh energy quicken your pace and you move forward with a new attitude. Why the change? The suffering you're going through involves a relationship. Not just any relationship, but one with your child. It is a love that you have for your child that quickens your step and buoys your heart. Your relationship gives your burden meaning. Suffering has no meaning in itself. Left to its own, it is a frustrating and bewildering burden. But given the context of a relationship, suffering suddenly has meaning, unquote. You know, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 says, Therefore we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. The things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Unquote. We don't lose heart. We don't lose heart when suffering comes, because even though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. And when we see the purposes, when we see the purposes and ends from God's perspective, with knowledge from the truth of the Word of God, knowledge that it is our baby on our back, then what? Our back straightens up, our knees no longer buckle. And we have renewed vigor when life is difficult. Suffering in this world is something that no one, 
No one will escape. Everyone faces adversity. Everyone faces problems. Everyone faces suffering, whether it be in your life or someone else's life. It is because we live in a fallen world. Because the life that we have here, there is war, there is disease, there are political problems, there are conflicts with friends, conflicts in families, there are conflicts with relatives and parents and teachers, conflicts within the church, financial difficulties, educational disappointments, tragedies from natural disasters, persecution because of one's faith, and all sorts of issues related to life that bring suffering, some that are built into the fabric of the consequences of sin, while others are because they are for purposes unbeknownst to us. Suffering, especially physical suffering in this world, can often make us question Question and ask, why does God allow things like this? Suffering. Why does God allow it to happen to good people? It's not an uncommon question. Why does God allow good people to suffer? The question, though, presumes, presumes a number of things. The question presumes that there are good people i.e. good in the eyes of God that have a deserving life, that deserve to be blessed, to deserve to be happy, to deserve to have a good life, an easy life, as if God owes us something. We're inclined to believe that God owes us something. We come many times with the sense of entitlement that says, you know what, I deserve I deserve to be blessed. I haven't committed any major crimes. I haven't done anything that is majorly wrong in our eyes. And rather than be thankful when calamity comes, rather than be thankful for what we have, with the breath that we have, for every day that we live, for every ability that we have, for every meal that we can eat, we take them for granted. And it's easy to become discontent or to grumble or to complain We don't have. God does not give us what we think we deserve. People often leave God. They walk away from God. They walk away from the church. They choose to live their own ways, not realizing that God has a purpose for suffering. That God has in His sovereign plan a purpose for suffering, even though it is a result of sin. And such is the story of Job. Such is the story of Job. For Job here in this particular text goes through suffering that most of us will never ever experience. And yet his response to God is a godly response. And that is what this passage outlines for us today. That is what this passage outlines for us today. So we look here to see, first of all, the character of Job. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The Bible says that Job was a blameless, upright man who feared God and turned away from evil. He was spiritually mature. He had children, ten of them, who would share meals. They would, they would celebrate together. He owned thousands of livestock, thousands in herds. He was a grower of crops. He was wealthy. 
He had many servants. He was influential. He was a priest to his family. He made offerings to the Lord weekly for the sins of his children, thinking in his heart they may have sinned against God, and he chose to make offerings on their behalf. He was a wise and he was a loving husband. In chapter 29, it tells us that he was a respected man among the people. Highly respected, regarded as a leader among the people. A generous man and a wise leader. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 14, verses 14 through 20, his righteousness is compared to Daniel and to Noah. And in James chapter 5, verse 11, he is commended for his spiritual endurance. For all intents and purposes, from the world's perspective, he was a good man. He was an upright man, undeserving of things that would happen, such as calamity or tragedy. Even from God's perspective... It says he was a blameless and a righteous man who feared God and turned away from evil. Job was a faithful and godly man, as it tells us in the first chapter of the book of Job. But even as we who live here on earth, there is a continual conflict in the spiritual realm. And so we see the claim of Satan in verse 6. Verse 6. The scriptures tell us, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now the sons of God here in verse 6 that come before God are angelic beings. Angelic beings. And here Satan comes along with them. Now the word Satan there is a by way, by the way, is a title. It's not his name. It's a title. You know, our president, his name is Barack Obama. His Title is that of president. His name is not president. Same here. Satan is his title. And the title that he has here, Satan, means adversary. Adversary. And what Satan does is he continually accuses Christians before God. He continually accuses Christians before God and will do whatever it takes to draw people away from God. He does whatever it will take to draw people away from God. Many times, most of the time, his ploy is not to walk around scaring people with a pitchfork and a long tail and horns and go boo. His ploy is to deceive them through false teaching, false ideas, false philosophies, false gods, idols of various types, whatever it would take to draw someone's heart away from God, that is his goal. That is why I believe it is such an offense to God, those who are false teachers, those who are fortune tellers, those who say they predict the future, those who are involved with witchcraft, all of those things actively deceive and take one's attention away from God. They lead people away from God, away from the truth. And here Satan, our enemy, our adversary, converses with God. And beginning in verse 7, God says, From where do you come? Then Satan answers the Lord and says, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. 
Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him about his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. What an affront, an accusation by our adversary. Our adversary by Satan, is, his accusation is simple. The only reason why believers follow you, God, is because of what they receive from you. Take away all of his belongings. Take away all of these things that you've blessed them with and they will curse you. They'll show their true heart. That they aren't genuine. Satan wanted to prove that saving faith was only a sham. That believers only follow God as long as they get what they want. So the Lord gives permission here to Satan to take everything away from Job, to prove that his faith was sincere and genuine. And the only thing that he was not allowed to do was to, this time, afflict Job bodily. Later on he will. But in this particular conversation, we see, we see some particular truths we learn that are interchange, in the interchange between God and Satan. First of all, that God is involved in permitting as well as causing suffering. God is involved in permitting as well as causing adversity. See, some people desire to keep God out of everything and say that God is not involved at all in calamity when that happens. But God is involved in permitting things, both good and bad, to come upon people, as well as, in his sovereign hand, orchestrating them as well. Amos chapter 3, verse 6, Amos asks a question in the time of disaster. If calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Answer would be yes. Or after losing ten of his children <coughs> and the collapse of his son's house, Job says himself in Job chapter 1, verse 21, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, Satan can cause suffering. And in Job 2, 7, it says, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job later on. He is allowed to smite Job with sore boils and the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. One author notes, Satan struck him, but Job did not get comfort from looking at secondary causes. He got comfort from looking at the ultimate cause. Quote, shall we not accept adversity from God? And the author of Job agrees with Job when he says that Job's brothers and sisters, quote, consoled him and comforted him, Job 42, 11, for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. That the Lord had brought on him. God both permits and in his sovereignty orchestrates adversity. That being said, though, Satan 
we see as a second principle, can do nothing. Satan can do nothing unless God allows him, permits him to. Satan cannot harm anyone, cannot bring calamity upon anyone, cannot touch anyone unless God allows him to. Satan does not roam absolutely free doing anything that he so chooses. Even Satan is under the leash of the sovereign hand of God. Thirdly, God has a purpose. God has a purpose for suffering and calamity. James chapter 5 verse 11 reminds us of God's purposes in suffering and calamity. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. That the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. Job chapter 42, verse 2. Job himself concludes at the very end in a prayer. He says this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God is sovereign even in suffering. God is sovereign even in calamity. God is in control. And we may know something that God has given us a glimpse in, a word of comfort, that no matter what happens, God is in control. We may know that God knows that suffering and calamity has its purposes and we can have peace in that truth. So Satan is allowed to test the genuineness of Job's faith in four successive disasters. And the calamity of Job is seen in verse 13. Calamity strikes Job. The oxen and the donkeys are taken by the Sabaeans, who also kill his servants. Fire consumes all of the sheep and servants. The Chaldeans steal the camels and kill the servants. All of his children died when their house collapses from a strong wind. In just one fell swoop, in just one short period of time, Job loses everything he owns. He loses all that he owns with the exception of the servants who come to tell him the news. The four messengers, all ten of his children Everything has gone. How difficult it must be to even lose one child, let alone all ten of your children. But life is frail, isn't it? Life is frail. In one moment of time, our hearts go out to people. When we see on the news an airliner that falls out of the sky and an entire family loses its children in a tragedy. One moment of time we read in the news and hear on the news of hit-and-run drivers who will plow through a crowd. In one moment of time, sickness may come and take life. One moment of time, you may be in good health and the next day find out your time is limited. One moment of time, you may simply trip and fall, and calamity may come. You could be traveling on any bridge, and that bridge may collapse. You may be in any building, and a terrorist might strike. September 11th, 
2001, two airplanes were hijacked, flown into the Twin Towers. Nearly 3,000 people died in that accident, and in one day, thousands of people's lives were changed. And that, even in our country, is moderate compared to many tragedies around the world. Life changes drastically in times of war. Life changes drastically in times of drought and in famine, in political upheaval. That is not to say that it is not a tragedy. That is to say, though, that tragedy occurs to varying degrees and it occurs in everyone's life. Calamity is just around the corner. Many times suffering comes unexpectedly. In Luke chapter 13, verse 1, if you'll turn your Bibles there, Luke chapter 13, verse 1, there's an incident of a tragedy that happens. And his disciples asked the Lord Jesus about this. In Luke chapter 13, verse 1, there was an occasion in Luke chapter 13, verse 1, where the text reads, Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffer this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed, they were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, in this context, some people come to Jesus and they they tell him, and they asked about these Galileans. Some Galileans had come down to offer sacrifices. You see, they'd come down to offer sacrifices, and they came, and Pilate came in, and he slaughtered them. He slaughtered them while they were there at the altar, and their blood was spilled, and their blood was mingled with the blood of the offering, and the people were appalled. They were appalled. The people were thinking, these people... Because this calamity had happened on them, they must have been terrible people to have their blood slaughtered right at the altar. They must have been wicked Galileans. You can think to yourself, those who were of Judea thought they were extra special, but the Galileans who lived farther north, they were those who were not looked upon favorably by those who lived in Judea. Wicked Galileans Bad as Pilate was, these Galileans must have been worse. That's what they thought. But Jesus says, what? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Then he says, do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all these men who live in Jerusalem? In other words, unless you repent... You will all likewise perish in that too. Do you get the message? You see, there was a tower. There was a tower that fell. There was a tower that fell and killed a group of people. And people were thinking, because that tower fell on these people, they must have been bad, real bad. 
Oftentimes, that is the temptation. When calamity comes, we can think, well, it's because of such and such, and we think of their sins or their shortcomings or whatever it may be, but that may not be the case. The point of the passage is Jesus wasn't saying, well, these people are better or worse. That's the question they wanted him to answer. But the point of the passage is, when you die, you'd better be ready to meet God. When you die... Have you repented? Have you repented? Have you turned to God? Is your life right with God? Are you prepared no matter what may happen in life? Because calamity will happen both to the righteous and the unrighteous. How do you respond when you think of the most precious thing of yours that might be taken away? Think about what you love the most. Think about what you care about the most for your family or for your health or for your life. Imagine that today you might be gone just like that. How would you respond? Would you respond like Job does in verse 20 to 22? Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and worshipped He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. The tearing of a person's robe, the shaving of a person's head was a sign of mourning back in Old Testament times. And rather than cursing God, rather than questioning God, rather than being angry with God as if God deserved or he was entitled to something better, a good life. Remember, Job was a righteous and a blameless man. He was well, well respected within the community. God had given to him many things. Job, if he did not know God, might respond with anger questioning, doubting goodness of God, but he doesn't. He falls to the ground and he worships. He worships. He humbles himself. He surrenders himself to God and he worships. He acknowledges that he came into the world with nothing, with nothing Absolutely naked as a baby, he came into the world. Everything that he has received, he has received from the hand of God, and he acknowledges that. He acknowledges that everything that he had was given to him by God, and because it was given to him by God, God has every right to take it away. Lord has given me my life, my friends, my family, my possessions, my health, and even the food on the table. So if we don't have our food on the table, if we don't have our family, our friends, our job, or whatever it may be, shall we complain? I don't have to run in fear of my safety. I can read my own copy of the Bible. I can have a Bible study in public. I can do all of these things and enjoy the joys that God has given to me because it is by His grace. It is a gift. God has given these things. 
all because of his grace. I don't deserve to be saved. I don't deserve to have things that I have. I don't deserve to enjoy the comforts of life. And so when God decides to take something away, we remember that it is a gift for a time. The Bible says that through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. The character of Job and the genuineness of his salvation shines through, and he worships. He worships God, does not blame God, but he accepts what comes from the hand of God. God doesn't owe you and I anything except for those things which are promised to us in his word based upon the character of God himself. When calamity comes then, suffering comes, difficulty comes, remember all that we have is by the grace and the goodness of God, and we need to humble ourselves before God, and we throw ourselves before God, and throw away our entitlement, and say, you know, God has given, God has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. When problems and tragedy comes, what is inside comes out. Fruit that shows itself in truly what it is when it is squeezed. And so too, when the pressure comes on, you'll find out what is truly in your heart. When temptation comes, you'll find out what is truly in the heart. When difficulties come and the problems arise and tragedy strikes, you'll find out what is in the heart. Dawson Trotman was the founder of Navigators, very influential in the life of many people. I remember reading how Billy Graham would say that Dawson Trotman's testimony in his own life was perhaps the greatest and most powerful that he had experienced in his Life. In 1956, Dawson Trotman, who was the founder of the Navigators, drowned, though, saving the life of a young girl who was water skiing. He had a very influential ministry. And in his drowning, it influenced many, many people with sorrow and disbelief, and they were in profound anxiety and tears disbelief that his life was just taken just like that in a drowning accident. Everyone was distraught, except for his wife who heard the news. When she heard the news, Leela Trotman, when they told her that he's gone, Dawson's gone, she replied with calm assurance, Psalm 115, verse 3, and said, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. All of that anguish, loneliness that normally consumes and cripples people didn't invade her heart. She leaned upon the sovereignty of God Our God in our heaven does whatever he so pleases. Johnny Erickson Tata writes about a life, a day in her life, what it's like. As I mentioned, she's a quadriplegic, and 
She says, honesty is the best policy, especially when you're surrounded by a crowd of women in a restroom during a break at a Christian woman's conference. One woman putting on lipstick said, oh, Johnny, you always look so together, so happy in your wheelchair. I wish I had your joy. Several women around her nodded. How do you do it, she asked as she capped her lipstick I glanced at the nicely dressed woman around me. I knew that the break would soon be over. How could I answer her question in 60 seconds? How could I sum up the soundbite, what has taken me three decades of quadriplegia to learn? I don't do it, I said. That raised their eyebrows. In fact, may I tell you honestly how I woke up this morning? Several women leaned across the counter to listen. This is an average day, I breathed deeply. After my husband, Ken, leaves for work at 6 a.m., I'm alone until I hear the front door open at 7 a.m. That's when a friend arrives to get me up. While I listen to her make coffee, I pray, Oh, Lord, my friend will soon give me a bath, get me dressed, Sit me on my chair, brush my hair and my teeth, and send me out the door. I don't have the strength to face this routine one more time. I have no resources. I don't have a smile to take into the day, but you do. May I have yours? God, I need you desperately. Looking at their expressions, I could tell that underneath the makeup and the jewelry, they too were carrying burdens. They were weary. Their hearts were bruised and numb, and they were curious to know more. So what happens when your friend comes through the bedroom door, one of the masks? I turn my head toward her and give her a smile sent straight from heaven. It's not mine. It's God's. And so, I said, gesturing to my paralyzed legs, whatever joy you see today was hard won this morning. The women in the restroom were silent. And it's the only way to live. It's the Christian way to live. The break was over. It was time to move on the evening. Many of them went home with weary bodies, swollen ankles, and sore feet to face broken garbage disposals and indifferent husbands and rebellious children. I hope that the women also went home knowing that they can go desperately and urgently to God for grace. I have learned that the weaker we are, the more we need to lean on God, and the more we lean on God the stronger we discover him to be. God has used my quadriplegia to teach me and others through me that in our weakness, he is strong. In our weakness, he is strong, unquote. When life is difficult and calamity comes, difficulties arise, conflicts erupt, we can turn to God. And a godly response is not to sin, not to pull, fight for our entitlements that we might feel we may have, not to pursue our own happiness, 
not to take the easy way out, not to follow the world and the world's advice, but to trust in God, that God has as His purposes suffering for our perseverance, the building of our character, and for His sovereign purposes. Our response is to be faithful, worship, and to declare that we came into this world having nothing. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God in heaven, we come as people, Lord, who need you. Father, in our weakness, we pray that you might be strong. In our burdens, we pray that we might cast our cares upon you, for you care for us. In our shortcomings, O oh God, may you use them to glorify yourself, that you might be the one who shines, that you might be the one who can use a frail vessel like ours to bring honor and glory and to shine in a way that we would never be able to. God, may we never be in the way, but may you carry our burdens and lighten our load that we might recognize that it is you who brings as well as allows calamity to come for our good and for your glory. And may you be forever honored in Jesus' name. Amen.